I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where um, there's very happy music playing, but in your life, actually, life is really quite difficult, and it feels like you're in a, a lot of darkness. And that, this, the, what's just been read by Tony, is where the Israelites enter into what feels like and is an extremely, extremely dark time. And uh, if you were following the reading, and if you're online or if you're here in the hall, you'll know that the, some of the themes are pretty adult. I'll try and tone them down a bit, um, but in some ways it's impossible to tone them down completely because they're just so severe uh, and brutal. So I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're going to get stuck into uh, this passage. Lord, um, we thank you that you are so realistic about the world around us and how dark it can be, and yet you offer us incredible hope. And we pray now that as we look at this passage, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things, hard things, and you would help us uh, stick with you as you stick with us. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you feel like, how am I going to carry on? How am I going to make it through the next hour, the next day, the next week, uh, the next year? Life is so challenging. Life feels so dark. And that is the situation that the Israelites faced as they uh, were made slaves in Egypt. And uh, the amazing thing about this story is that two particular women, Shipra and Pora, are highlighted as amazing examples of people who keep going no matter what they face, even when they face the most extreme things in life. Uh, the most extreme things like, like death itself, like a tyrant literally um, putting their life on the line. And, uh, and I, I think there's lots to learn about how we can stick with God, how we can have integrity even in the darkest moments, even when our life or our livelihoods feels uh, under threat. And that might be where we are at now. It might be at where we will be one day. It might be that uh, we can look around the world and see perhaps people in Ukraine or people in the Horn of East Africa where there's drought. uh, And you can go, yes, that's where they are. And it will help us pray uh, for them. But the story begins um, where Genesis left off. Um, you might know the first book of the Bible is Genesis, and it's followed by Exodus. And the very first word of Exodus is the word and, because Exodus follows the story of Genesis. And uh, we've been looking at Genesis over the last three years. And uh, you may remember the, how uh, God called this man Abraham and his wife Sarai, and he gave them some amazing promises. Um, he said to them, I will make you into a great nation, and I will make your name great. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, three promises. Great nation, great name, whole world will be blessed. At the time, Abraham and Sarai uh, had no family at all. They were hardly a great nation. In fact, Sarai and Abraham, they were 80 years old. She was barren. They had no children. Hardly a great nation. By the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, 70 people from their family enter in to, uh, into Egypt. God is beginning to build a nation. He's beginning to fulfill that promise. They, Abraham when he, and Sarai, when they arrived uh, in Canaan, they hardly had a great name. No one knew them. They'd come from a pagan land. And yet at the end of Genesis, the beginning of ex, uh, Exodus, we find out that he, one of his children, or children's children, children, Joseph, has literally been the savior of the known world at that, that time. He's been not just got a great name, but he's rescued that world from an incredible famine that lasted seven years. He's been a blessing to the entire 
world, well, the world that, that they would have known at that time. And so God, again, is fulfilling his promises. And the verse 6 is even more explicit about this. Uh, it says this, it will be on your screen. Uh, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites became exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. In other words, God is keeping his promise. One thing that we need to know when we're going through a hard time or when we're about to go through a hard time is this foundation of God's faithfulness to us, that he is always and always utterly reliable. And there may be times when he feels absent and there may be times where it feels so hard and we're going through the darkest tunnel and yet he is faithful. I wonder what the soundtrack to your life is. Uh, maybe it's Three Camels. That might, song might be in your head for the rest of the day. Um, but I hope the soundtrack for your life is God's utter dependability, his faithfulness, his faithfulness to you. As I look back on my life, and I haven't gone through what these guys are about to go through, when I think of losing a job or, uh, or losing a baby or losing all kinds of other things that have been difficult, being bullied at school, I can look back and go, yes, God has been so faithful to me through it all. But that doesn't mean that life is a walk in the park, a stroll on a Sunday afternoon in the sunlight by the sea. Actually, sometimes it's really challenging. And uh, in this story, we meet a tyrant, um, the archetype enemy, if you like, uh, Pharaoh. And he is someone who is ruthless, brutal. He is on the level of the Putins of this world, of uh, the Hitlers of this world. He is totally and utterly evil. And he, uh, he, he says to his people, he announces this new home security policy. Um, he says this, he says, look, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. If war breaks out, They'll join our enemies and fight against us. Just as a side note, we always should be very careful when we hear inflammatory language. He says, look, there's a nation growing up in our nation. They're going to take over. Or um, we have to be very careful when fear is used by leaders to try and persuade us in a certain direction. We should be suspicious when that's used. And ask the question, where is this leading us? Is this leading us to following Jesus more closely? And if it's not, then we need to ask big questions and stop and pray and ask God, how should we respond in the face of those kind, that kind of rhetoric? But what happens next is that um, is a gradual uh, reducing of the people, the Israelites' power and reducing of their numbers. And although it happens in a few verses in Exodus, this would have happened over probably decades um, as gradually this home security policy was put into place um, in the Egyptian land. And I want to read it um, so that you can see just what's going on. Verse 11 says this, So they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramesses as storehouses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and with harsh labor, with brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Do you see the building of language as they begin to oppress them more and more, making their lives miserable, um, so that they're, they're, they're a, a 
basically abused and used in whatever way they possibly can. And this is to reduce their uh, power. One way of reducing power is to change uh, the order of society. What they do is they, they work, the Israelites were shepherds. They had a recognized role from the government um, in Joseph's time as shepherds to supply um, the uh, Egyptians with what they, what they needed. Um, but now their role is taken away from them entirely. And now they're reduced to slavery, doing menial tasks in the, in, in the fields and building storehouses, probably having to leave their families, the men that is, in order to do that. But they also, the, the, the Pharaoh's reason for doing this is also to reduce numbers. Because if you can, if you can work someone ruthlessly, tirelessly, and enslave them, then they'll become weaker. They won't be able to stand up against you. They won't be able to ask questions and, and form an organization to resist you. And so he's reducing um, their numbers. Some of them will be killed. And eventually, of course, the idea, um, when that doesn't work, is that the children will be thrown into the Nile. It is absolutely horrendous. And perhaps you can uh, relate in some way to this as you watch the news of what's going on in Ukraine in some way, uh, or what's going on in Yemen, or if you look back uh, in history and look to World War II and what happened uh, in the concentration camps. He is a ruthless dictator, really wanting to just destroy, or at the very least reduce the power and numbers of the Israelite people. But one of the things that you might notice as this was read is that despite in the background this kind of overture of the theme of God's faithfulness, it very much feels like God is totally absent or does virtually nothing. Um, did you notice that God's name is not mentioned once in the passage that was read? It is mentioned in chapter 2 twice, but it feels like God is hardly doing anything. And sometimes in life, uh, despite us knowing in our head, we know God's faithful, in our heart it can feel like he is totally absent, that we can't feel his presence, that it doesn't feel like he's at work in our lives or in the lives of those we care deeply about. It can feel like we're going through the darkest tunnel ever and there is no light at the end of the, t end of the tunnel, perhaps despite other people telling us that there might be. And that's very true to our world, isn't it? I've been reading over the summer holidays, uh, Corrie ten Boom, The Hiding Place. Uh, you might know her story. Uh, she was a Dutch woman who, um, in the Second World War, uh, saw that uh, the Gestapo were rounding up Jewish people. And, uh, and so she thought, well, I'm going to hide some. And her family had this rather strange house that had all kinds of um, weird staircases and odd-shaped rooms. And so it was perfect for hiding uh, Jewish people in there. And so uh, an architect comes in and they build this false wall. And they do these kind of time trials where they race uh, the people who they're trying to hide into this, um, this uh, hidden room. And eventually one day the Gestapo knock at the door. They race to the room and they can't find them. But later on... Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy are transported to a camp and later on to a concentration camp. And her, her faith is extraordinary. This is what she says. She says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the driver. She's in as dark a tunnel as you can possibly imagine a concentration camp, and yet she says, I'm not going to throw my, away my ticket. 
I know that Jesus is the driver. He is going to take me through. He's going to take me through the dark tunnel and out the other side into the light. I know it. I trust him. And I'm going to stay the course. She had incredible integrity. She also said this, and I think this is so helpful. She says, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. And her story, The Hiding Place and others of her book, is about being at rest in Christ, even when you are in the darkest tunnel imaginable. Perhaps you find yourself in a dark tunnel right now with no hint of light at the end. Uh, Perhaps you know others who are right now. Or perhaps one day you will find yourself in that place. God can feel absent, but he is present. And in fact, we have even greater uh, reason to believe that. Because Jesus on the cross did feel God's absence so that we could feel God's presence. He took on our sins so that nothing could separate us from God ever again. Neither height nor depth, uh, anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But what resources can we have to keep going and be people of integrity and follow Jesus even when we're in the darkest tunnel? Well, these two women, uh, Shipra and Pora, give us a hint of this. And they are incredible women. In fact, to be honest, the heroes in this story are all women. They're the women who uh, give birth despite knowing that their children could face that could be the last day of their life. And despite uh, and the, the midwives who face Pharaoh, because Pharaoh comes up to the, these two midwives and says, um, you are to put an end to their life. Any boy that comes, that's what you're to do. That's an order. I don't want any questions asked. And can you imagine what it was like? Can you imagine the fear? I don't know if you've ever been told by a boss or someone who's got authority over that you must do something and how that feels, particularly if it's something you don't want to do. But imagine if it was Pharaoh who you've seen how ruthless and brutal he can be, the amount of fear you have. And yet the last verse uh, that Tony read said this, they did not harm the boys. How on earth did they do that? Well, verse 17 uh, gives us a clue. Uh, It says, The midwives, however, feared God, and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. What does it mean to fear God? It, It doesn't mean to be terrified and so scared that you can't talk to God or you can't trust him. Obviously, that wouldn't help. What it means is that your vision of God is bigger than your vision of anything else or anyone else, even someone like Pharaoh, or even the most difficult struggle or terrible circumstance you can imagine. Your vision of God is bigger than your vision of that. And so when, you, when Shipra and Pora face Pharaoh, Pharaoh, although he is brutal, and although what he can do is very real and, and horrendous, he is still this big compared to God, who is infinitely big. He is still tiny in compared to God. Have you ever made uh, a mountain out of a molehill? Have you ever done that? Have you heard that phrase? You know, like when um, something's going on in your life and, uh, and you begin to worry about it. But really, if you think about it in perspective, I'm not talking about big things, I'm talking about small things, molehill-sized things that aren't actually that significant in the light of day. Well, we can do the opposite. 
we can take something that is so big and reduce it to something so small, the size of a molehill. And we can do that with God. Do you ever do that with God? Where God is, he's the creator of the cosmos. He's the cre- Did you? I don't know if you saw, um, over the last few weeks, we've had some really clear skies. And you can see the stars. And they're light years away. God created them. He is bigger than them. He is huge. He is so powerful. Those stars are more powerful than our sun. And, and we felt the heat of the sun, haven't we, over the summer. God is so powerful. And yet we can reduce him to being something so small. There's another clue, though, of... Uh, what, of how, why we do this. And it's actually something that Pharaoh very deliberately does. Now, you probably wouldn't have noticed this as it was read. I certainly didn't notice it until I looked at a commentary. Um, but repeatedly, there's this phrase that the Israelites served, worked, and labored for Pharaoh over and over and over again. And if you then read on um, in the book of Exodus, you'll see that those words are also used about the Israelites serving, working for, and even worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And what Pharaoh intends to do for each of these Israelites is basically nothing short of becoming their God. He wants them to work for him, be enslaved by him, serve him, and even worship him. He considered himself a god, and the Egyptians would have done as well. And he wants them to have the same opinion of him as they do. In other words, he wants to be the biggest person in their world. He wants his size to not be a molehill, but to be a mountain. And when you work... work for someone, serve someone relentlessly, and they are the very aim of your life. That is what we call worship. And yet God says, as he will later, we'll find out in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, we're not to serve or worship anyone but the Lord our God. I don't know what you give your lives for to. I don't know what you serve. I don't know what you worship. I don't know what the aim of your life is. But if it isn't Jesus, then you are a slave to whatever that person or thing that you're serving is, whether it's some kind of great computer or a great holiday or a person that you will do anything for, even if it means compromising your faith in Jesus. That is what you're serving, living for, working for, laboring for, worshipping. And the more you do it, and we all do it, I do it, we do it every day. The more you do it, the more your habit is to not have God as big in your eye, but as small. And for other things to become big and him to be small. And then when we face a situation like uh, Pora and Shipra, it is very difficult to have integrity and to follow Jesus because we've made him small with the whole of our lives, or at least a significant part of it, instead of making him big. And so my encouragement to you is, make Jesus the size that he is in your mind's eye. Remember who he is. Remember that he's the creator of the cosmos. And remember this too, that he is faithful. And we have reason to believe he's faithful even more than Shipra and Pora. Do you remember, what, how did they know? How did they know that they could, how did they carry on following God despite Pharaoh being there? Now think about it, because they didn't have the whole Bible. We have the whole Bible, but they didn't even have one book of the Bible. Genesis wasn't written yet. They would have only had a few stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that had been passed down from generation to generation. They would have had the promises that God made, but that would have been it. But we have 
something even stronger, don't we? They had the covenant, that promise that God would make them into a great nation, give Abraham a great name, and that he'd be a blessing to the whole world. But we have a new covenant made in Jesus' blood that we're going to talk about uh, and share as we share Holy Communion. This new covenant that God will do whatever it takes to win us back, to win us out of slavery, to be the God that he is to us so that we can enjoy freedom and not just to worship other things that will enslave us, but to worship him who will free us. He died for you. Do you know that? He died for you. That's how much he loves you. He, you know, he didn't just look at a distance on what was going on in the Israelites. He comes down personally. He gets into the train and experiences suffering like we suffer. He died on the cross. He took the same kind of forced labor and whipping and ruthless treating that these Egyptians did. That's how committed he is to the Israelites then and to you today. And so I want to encourage you, trust him, trust the driver and stay the course because he is totally faithful.